0: coming up. The thing I think that you need to know, as well as anybody else, is that we are people too. Even though we don't see art the same way
1: you do, we do see it. From Indiana Public Media, art at the intersection with disability. I'm Yael Cassander. During the next hour, we share stories that investigate the role art plays in the lives of those living with different kinds of disabilities.
2: Music therapy kind of hit a nerve with him that helped him be able to express himself. I had some of his other workers coming up to me saying, I didn't even know he could talk.
1: From the use of art in the therapeutic setting to the daily reality of artists living with disabilities. So instead of limiting
3: your world, I think that illness in a way can actually
1: lead to insight if you're willing to let it in. That's all just ahead. Stay with us. Many people do not experience disability until later in life. In the cases of photographer Steve Gifford and painter Mark Smith, the practice of making visual art has mitigated suffering. Annie Corrigan offers this profile of an Iraq War veteran who is able to cope with lingering mental images by putting them on canvas
4: artist mark smith starts with charcoal that's the best way for him to get his emotions out on the canvas right away with the image he calls specialist warner he added detail with watercolor later to get in the right frame of mind for his painting he plays some music mostly stuff he was listening to during his time serving in the army in iraq back in 2004
5: i just blaze some music really loud you know i blare it you know, I like when I was doing this, I would listen to like, As I Lay Dying, and it can't have words. I don't want words. I just want the, the feel of the music, you know.
4: Smith was a medic during his year-long tour in Iraq. When he came home to Indiana, he wanted to focus on his art.
5: I, went to, I was thinking about going into a graduate program in art therapy, but I soon realized that I was kind of having problems myself, so... I didn't think that at that time I would have been a good candidate to be in the helping professions. And I really felt like I needed to work some of the things out for myself through my art, you know.
4: His experiences in war seeped into his everyday life in the form of bad dreams and recurring visions of treating wounded soldiers and civilians. Still today, not a day goes by that he doesn't think about that time nine years ago. Painting is his way to cope with his PTSD.
5: I mean, I can't tell you like how difficult it is to... Um, you know, emotionally begin to draw someone's face and try to get it right, you know, and, like, going through it over and over again as someone that you cared about very much who was killed, you know.
4: For his latest project, he reached out to his fellow soldiers and asked them to send him their pictures of their time in Iraq. He then painted those images. Hanging on the wall at the Harrison Center for the Arts in Indianapolis are several works from that series in pen and ink, watercolor, and gouache. He's exhibiting them as part of the War and Peace Veterans Art Project. The specialist Warner painting depicts a soldier in profile aiming a rifle.
5: This picture was taken um, when we went to Tal Afar, which is a few miles north e- northwest of Mosul, and uh, they took that photo of me. It was really good. And then just like a few minutes later, his truck was blown up, and I evacuated him from the vehicle.
4: Specialist Warner lived through the attack, but then Smith lost touch with him after his tour ended. Thanks to this project, they reconnected after eight years.
5: Make it affordable. This is, this is Sergeant who? It's Sergeant Robertson. Sergeant Robertson.
4: Visitors will arrive at the War and Peace exhibit in about an hour. Smith is pricing his paintings with a it's museum curator 55. as Scott Van Adder takes notes on a clipboard.
5: Uh, We're just taking inventory of everything. They're all going for four. They're all forty-five, ex- except for that. Way album. too little.
4: Hey, I want people to have it unsold. That was Van Adder.
5: Did you say that was sold? There yeah, it is now. Who bought it? Did you buy it? I just bought it.
4: He purchased a painting called Specialist Warner, Colonel Corella and Sergeant Scott for $45. What drew him to it?
5: Uh, Memories. I'd rather not say. Except for that one.
4: Despite his PTSD, there are some memories Smith wants to keep, like the connections he made with his fellow soldiers. Through his painting, he immortalizes his friends while working through his difficulties.
5: I have the gift of being able to put out into the world what I feel inside through my images. But if I couldn't do that, then it would be horrible because be, it would really be locked in my head.
4: When he first came home from the war, he said he wasn't a good candidate to be in the helping professions. Now Mark Smith is a member of the VSA Indiana staff, the state organization on arts and disability, where he teaches art to children with disabilities. For
1: WFIU Arts, I'm Annie Corrigan. That was Annie Corrigan's profile of artist Mark Smith. This hour... We're listening to stories that investigate the role art plays in the lives of those living with disabilities. As distinct from one another as the individuals they profile, the stories on today's program share common themes. We'll hear how professional artists cope with debilitating symptoms. We talk with people new to music, dance, and theater about how the art form enriches their lives. We also report on the innovative ways people are able to enjoy art forms previously off-limits. From Indiana Public Media, I'm Yael Cassander, with stories from the intersection of art and disability. When Steve Gifford is at work, it needs to be very quiet. That's because he's a wildlife photographer. Waiting quietly outdoors for hours on end suits him fine. In fact, it's part of what makes him feel and function better. James Gray accompanied Gifford on an expedition to the Columbia Mine Preserve in southern Indiana.
6: Steve Gifford tracks bobcats, and when he finds one, he snaps its photo.
7: Typically when I'm waiting,
6: you don't even have to be super
7: camouflaged. I'll just be sitting down in here, and then I'll have my camera up here.
6: He's holding a pair of binoculars to his face and crouching down behind a pile of wood. Steve says you have about a 1% chance of seeing a bobcat when you go out on the Columbia Mine property. He's dressed in camouflage, and sometimes he sits in this hole for hours waiting for many people this would be exhausting but for steve it's a form of therapy therapy for his neurological disorder steve's diagnosis came as a surprise when he saw his first symptoms he didn't know what was happening
7: in the first symptom that i had it was really weird it was uh, the right side of my body my my lat muscle was always really sore and really tight and i couldn't figure out for the life of me why
6: This was in 1994, 12 years before Steve was diagnosed. He noticed that his movement was slowing. The worst moment came in a donut shop. Steve's wife, Sarah, left him alone at the counter, and while she visited the restroom, Steve's throat clenched.
7: And so at that point, most normal people would raise their hand, help, I'm choking and stuff. But the reality is is it's such an embarrassing thing that I set down my milk, I spilled milk everywhere, And I ran out of the
6: restaurant. When Sarah found Steve in the car, he had swallowed the food, but they both knew he could have died. It was a turning point.
7: And a lot of older people that end up, you know, they say they passed away from Parkinson's. You don't really pass away from Parkinson's. There's no such thing. But they most likely asphyxiated, which is choking, or fell down some stairs and broke something, and that led to complications or whatever.
6: Finally Steve went to a neurologist and after a meeting with a specialist, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease.
7: And after that appointment, I'm kinda like, Woohoo! You know, because you can't you can't deal with something until you know what's going on. My wife, of course, has got a different reaction. She's devastated. But I'm like, you know, heck, this is fantastic. I mean, for I've been doing this for how long now? And finally, we can do something about it.
6: Parkinson's comes from a dopamine deficiency. It can lead to depression, but also problems controlling your muscles. It is a degenerative disease. The symptoms get worse with time and stress. So after Steve's diagnosis, he left his job. With the Columbia Mine property, where Steve photographs bobcats. I'll just tell you, I know for a fact that
7: I tracked one of the bobcats for over a year and a half, and he uses this trail all the time his
6: feet are shuffling along the path eventually we come to an opening along the railroad tracks this is where Steve has shot his best bobcat footage because of the tremors many people ask Steve if it is hard for him to stay still when he is waiting on bobcats but Steve says no he says he feels calm and Parkinson's can create a lot of fatigue so when Steve is waiting on a bobcat he is at rest it's so helpful it's
7: unbelievable I mean it doesn't make it go away but it definitely improves it and slows it for without a doubt.
6: Although I didn't get to see any bobcats when I was with Steve, I did see one thing that seemed remarkable. We walk down the railroad tracks a bit further and take a seat on a gravel embankment. We watch muskrats swim under the railroad tracks, ducks come out from reeds. This is when Steve says, look, and he's holding up his hand. It's parallel to the ground, and it's completely still. For WFIU Arts, I'm James Gray.
1: You can see photos and video of Gifford at work at the Columbia Mine property at our website, wfiu.org slash arts slash disabilities. Like Steve Gifford, poet Nadine Pined suffered mysterious and painful symptoms for many years before obtaining a diagnosis. Pined's illness has also prompted her to focus on the outside world. Annie Corrigan produced this portrait of Nadine Pined. So I didn't consciously set out to
3: write about pain and its many manifestations, but I think that that came through because that's what I was dealing with. At the time This is Nadine Paned And I'm a writer I found something, okay This is called Known by Her Scars She is warm-blooded And so are we She carries her young for 13 months And has to come up for air We count and keep track by charting her scars. I've lived with chronic pain for a great part of my life. And most recently, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. I came down with symptoms after a series of intense surgeries that were related to endometriosis. After those surgeries, I was not the same as before. And I began having widespread pain, um, a constant sense of fatigue, and I had particular spots on my body where if they were even touched in a moderate way, I felt a lot of pain. So it took me several years to get the correct diagnosis. And for a lot of that time, I felt as if people were telling me, it's all in your head, and if They can't see them. Sometimes they don't believe that these disabilities are real or they believe people are simply lazy or crazy or both. The map of her past is unfurled on her back. Steel sliced her skin. She knows where each cut happened but can't avoid the danger to find warmer water. The boat speed up. She's always in the way. I think the other problem, too, is all of us have felt pain at some time in our lives. And for people who don't have fibromyalgia, you feel pain, but it goes away. And so the idea is that there's this narrative that it has a beginning, middle, and end. There are writers I've turned to who talk about pain in ways that are richer and deeper One of them is actually the French writer, Alphonse Daudet. He said that pain is always new to the sufferer, but loses its originality for those around him. How it affects me, fibromyalgia, as a writer, is that I don't have the energy to do as much writing as I want to do. The other level is I've changed the way that I write by paying more attention to the world around me a lot more. I think that comes from not wanting to be narrowly focused on the chronic conditions. So instead of limiting your world, I think that illness, in a way, can actually lead to insight if you're willing to let it in. A manatee is known by her scars. She wears them the way fish wear hooks in their mouths. She dives back down, not afraid of the dark.
1: That portrait of poet Nadine Pined was produced by Annie Corrigan, with help from Colleen Leahy. I'm Yael Cassander. On top of the pain, a difficult part of Pined's disability is what she calls its invisibility, the fact that others may not see it. The same goes for a different neurological condition that's common among musicians. It's called focal dystonia. But, as with fibromyalgia, there's a stigma that surrounds the musician's condition that keeps it below the radar. Annie Corrigan reports.
4: There are some topics you know to just not talk about. On a first date, let's say, traditionally, you stay away from religion and politics. If you're a musician, there's a different taboo topic, injury. If you start talking too much about that, they might be thinking, oh... Maybe I'm injured.
8: You know, musicians, they don't want to hear about this. Don't tell me that this could be happening. Because all of a sudden, they start imagining things.
4: That was Dr. Peter Iltis, an exercise physiologist. Before him, Janice Stockhouse, director of bands at Bloomington High School North. When flute player Joanna White noticed a problem with her playing, she realized she was on her own.
9: The more I started... Looking into focal dystonia,
4: I found out that people don't really talk about it, with good reason. Focal dystonia is a neurological condition that causes involuntary muscular contractions.
9: You know, they don't want to have people staring at them and wondering if they're going to be able to play their next note. White is a professor of
4: flute at Central Michigan University. Her troubles started with a curious quiver in her lip after some especially strenuous playing. After a while, everything about her playing was uncertain, from the shake in her lip to uncontrollable performance anxiety. She was eventually diagnosed with focal dystonia in 2013. At first, she kept quiet about her condition.
9: But I started realizing that if I wanted to get help, I needed to try to find people who knew something about it.
4: So she started asking around.
9: Dystonia is probably the most urgent problem that we face in terms of health care of instrumental performer.
4: That's Dr. Richard Letterman, a neurologist at the Cleveland Clinic. He works with musicians like White all the time. Another reason why we don't talk about focal dystonia is because we just don't know much about it.
9: Forty years ago, this was unknown, and no one talked about dystonia in musicians. There were no cases reported.
4: White and others are now starting to speak up about their struggles with dystonia. There's a community of researchers, teachers, and therapists who are trying to learn more about the condition and develop ways to work around it. Peter Iltis of Gordon College is researching dystonia in horn players. His team is collecting MRI data showing what's happening inside their mouths. As their control group, they recruited horn players from the Berlin Philharmonic. The participants performed a series of exercises on a special horn made for the MRI chamber. Researchers noticed subtle differences in how the musicians played their instruments. For instance, the techniques they used to move from low to high notes. The control group changed the positions of their tongues inside their mouths to help reach the high notes. Imagine going from A to E.
8: It appears as though the Estonia people don't do this tongue movement. So how do you get the high notes?
4: Some used extra force in their outer facial muscles, more tension. Now, this is not to say that players using this technique will get focal dystonia. Not at all. Tension, overuse, and repetitive motions are likely pieces of the dystonia puzzle. But Iltis and Letterman both emphasize that there's something else going on here. A genetic predisposition, perhaps? They don't really know. As they continue to learn more... Iltis says it's important to bring music educators into the conversation.
8: Let's get students when they're young. Let's teach them proper technique, and let's not allow them to take on these, you know, non-effective patterns.
4: When I visited Janice Stockhouse and the Bloomington High School North Marching Band, they were preparing for a competition. They take anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes to warm up their lip muscles before beginning rehearsal. I try to model but how we
9: rehearse, how we warm up, that's how you
4: prevent injury. Joanna White, on the other hand, plans to speak with her students and the larger flute community about her focal dystonia. She wants to encourage open dialogue about a topic that was once off limits. As for her playing... I'm still
9: trying to make
4: myself a program where I can keep getting better and better. <laughs> just like any other musician. For WFIU Arts, I'm Annie Corrigan.
1: This hour, we're sharing stories highlighting the intersection of art and disability. These stories were produced by Indiana Public Media over the past year, with the support of an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Yael Cassander. The stories we've shared so far highlight professional artists living with disabilities. The next few stories are not about professional artists. Art can be a means toward greater functioning or self-expression, and it can help people connect. Last year... Individuals with developmental disabilities teamed up with others in the community to form an acting crew. They created a show called I Am You. It was performed at the Bloomington Playwrights Project in March of last year.
10: Now, when I was a clown on the circus... That's right.
1: Joe this, Lee is telling his story, a story. to a troupe of fellow so, actors gathered in the rehearsal studio at Stonebelt. This, this is a true story. So I, I guess I, I have to pick someone to be me. Sure. The clown. Who would you
11: like to be you, the clown?
1: That's Michelle Brandon, Yadon, Stonebelt's drama therapist. Brandon, be me.
11: So, Brandon, you are going to be Joe, so be listening very carefully to his story. Joe, go ahead.
10: The clowns would sit behind the tent during the performance waiting to go in. Rose, I guess you'll be another clown. My clown name was Jolet. (laughs) Jolet! Rose could be Roy. Roy T. Clown. And as we sat behind
1: Joe keeps assigning roles until he reaches the end of his story.
10: Ola got closer and closer to me. And she would put her trunk out. And then she put her trunk around me. And then Captain Kine told me, I've never seen anything like it. Ola
1: is in love with you. Oh. When the story is done, Michelle recaps the plot and prompts the actors to recreate it for the storyteller.
11: So Joe, this is for you. Let's watch.
1: As Richard Laraway and Mary Kate Bristow begin to improvise some appropriate background music on melodica and guitar the actors assume their roles and take positions on stage, facing both Joe, the storyteller, and the audience.
2: Hi, friends!
7: Oh. <coughs> okay. Contact.
11: Oh. Jolet, I've never seen anything
12: like this before. Ola's in love with you. <laughs>
11: Playback is a form of theater used by educators, social workers, dance therapists, music therapists, and drama therapists.
1: Michelle Yadon.
11: Audience members tell feelings and stories, and the actors perform and play back those stories. This is the only inclusive playback troupe in America. the only troupe that has people with disabilities in America and the second one in the world the only other playback troupe that has people with disabilities on the troupe is in Hong Kong. So this is still a very new experience, and we've just been kind of Trying and adapting.
1: Indiana's only registered drama therapist, Yadon is used to trying new things.
11: In 2008 was when the first IMU monologues were produced. I worked with nine clients that year in developing stories about their lives that then were produced at the Bloomington Playwrights Project.
1: IMU returned to the Playwrights Project for two subsequent years. For each production, Yadon worked with different clients to develop personal revelatory monologues.
11: I have always thought that it's been wonderful advocacy and also wonderful for the clients to share all of their wealth of knowledge and that it's been wonderful for the community to see adults with
1: disabilities as people. But there was still something missing, Yadon felt, from those versions of I Am You. In order for the equation promised in the title to add up, the storytelling needed to flow in both directions.
11: So I started thinking about playback.
1: This year's production of I Am You begins with a series of monologues, then adds a second act featuring the playback theater troupe, whose audition I've dropped in on. During the performance, audience members will be invited on stage to tell their stories and have them acted out by the troupe.
11: A lot of times people have come to IMU and they've said, like, wow, I understand, or I know now. We've broken stigma, we've broken stereotypes, but I feel now we can break it even farther.
1: Making the troupe inclusive was another way Yadon hoped to break down differences and promote connection.
11: When we are in this rehearsal, everyone is working together as a team. And I see everyone looking at each other as a human. I wanted there to be people without disabilities because I wanted there to be those friendships and those relationships in the community, and I thought that it would be even more powerful for all of the actors and also the people who were a part of the experience as audience members.
1: Michelle was nice enough to let me uh, come out and audition. I know we were friends, but... Logan Good is a member of the Playback Theater Troupe. Luckily, uh, I impressed her enough um, with my limited background in theater. And... I think
11: the most important part about Playback, though, is not the theatrical ability, but it's the actual listening and having empathy. And that's really how I chose people to be on this troupe. A, a part of Logan was not the theatrical ability, but just the impulse of, of understanding someone's story. Brandon, where does your story begin?
5: So, um, I did my, uh, my, um, uh, grandpa.
11: So, the story begins, and it is about your grandpa.
1: Uh-huh. And what Michelle helps Brandon then? Kerfoot develop the story of attending his grandfather's funeral.
11: And did you say anything to him when you were at the funeral home?
5: Yeah, yeah.
11: What did you say to him?
5: Um, I I do miss him, I do. I, I do, all my heart.
11: So you said, I miss you and I love you with all my heart. Yeah. Brandon, this is such a beautiful story. And I know that all of us out here have experienced some kind of pain like this and some kind of memory and we all just appreciate you telling this story. Brandon, this is for you. Let's watch. As they see it played back, it's a visual of this memory and either people can have catharsis, so they can cry, they can laugh. They're able to see it and then almost shot the book on that story are you seeing
1: a change in them over the course of this yes.
11: i see amazing changes what brandon shared tonight that he was able to share that was so powerful and amazing and beautiful that he was able to be assertive. He had a build of his communication. He had a build of his insight. For several weeks, he's been telling the same story over and over, and it's about his love for the Backstreet Boys. But tonight, he identified with someone else, and that's amazing. The people that that experience in this group, I've seen them have an increase of positive relationships, an increase of self-esteem, an increase of
1: self-awareness.
11: Thank you for sharing that beautiful story. Let's give Brandon a round of applause.
1: For WFIU Arts, I'm Yael Cassander.
4: You'll be me for a while, I'll
3: be you.
1: You can see pictures of the Playback Theater troupe rehearsing for I Am You on our website at wfiu.org arts.
8: Next week on WFIU's Profiles, we'll speak with Naomi Oreskes. Oreskes is a scientist, historian, professor, and author. Her book, Merchants of Doubt, was recently made into a film. The book reveals how a group of prominent scientists figured out ways to use confusion to influence the public on important issues such as climate change and nutrition.
2: So they were men who had served on many of these select committees, special advisory committees to the president, to Congress, to the Department of Defense. But they started to do some strange things.
8: James Gray hosts Naomi Oreskes on WFIU's Profiles next Sunday evening at 6.
1: I'm Yael Cassander, with stories from the intersection of art and disability. Art and performance offer people a way to express themselves and connect with one another. In the story we're about to hear, Lacey Skarmana explains why people with Parkinson's disease are learning to dance, not only to increase their balance, coordination, and flexibility, but for the intangible reasons, the socializing, self-expression, and empowerment. (laughs)
13: Dancers spend hours perfecting pliés and pirouettes to perform in recitals. But the Dance for Parkinson's group in Bloomington, Indiana, uses dance in a different way. Good. And we're going to take clapping but in an unusual way. Up
0: and down. Good.
13: Weezy Smith was watching the PBS NewsHour a few years ago when she saw a story about Dance for Parkinson's, a dance group starting up in Brooklyn, New York,
10: that helped people cope with their Parkinson's symptoms. And I was very taken with it, and I thought it would be neat if we could eventually get one to to start here.
13: Parkinson's is a degenerative brain disease that causes locking and tremors in the body. Weezy was diagnosed in 2003.
10: Well, it starts, in my case anyway, with with this a small tremor in one hand or another, and then the tremor can get more and more involved. And usually by that time you've had it diagnosed as Parkinson's and you've been given some medication to control the tremor. And then one other effect that it has on me is that uh, I will freeze when I'm going to walk and turn direction and start back again. And if I'm not careful about that, I can stumble and fall because my mind is already started in the other direction, but my body is stopping. And uh, that can be frustrating.
13: In addition to medication, it is commonly believed that exercise helps curb the side effects of the disease. Alyssa Candati is a dance major at Indiana University, and she wants to use her talents through adaptive dance, or dance for special populations. She teaches the Bloomington Dance for Parkinson's class every other week. That's fun. Uh, yeah, I could fall.
7: Right. <laughs> Should we do it again?
11: Mm-hmm. Okay. From
12: the moment that Roberta mentioned it in class, I knew that this was a way that I could use my dance degree and my talents to help others. Her teacher, Roberta Wong, mentioned the opportunity in
13: class one day, and Alyssa took such a strong interest that she flew to New York to be trained by the founder of the
12: program, David Leventhal. It's just an incredible opportunity to see different movement and new movement from bodies that haven't taken class for all of their lives, and it's really just a beautiful thing to see them come in and enjoy the dance, and that's what has been keeping me going this whole time, because every time they come in, they have such a fun time, and we do too. Dance for Parkinson's
13: began in 2001 and has since expanded to more than 100 communities in 11 different countries. I spoke with founder David Leventhal on the phone, and he describes the benefits that dancing offers.
7: The thing about a dance class is because it's enjoyable, because there's music, because there are people dancing together, it's something that people want to return to. And in the process of that, they're working on the specific skills of balance, coordination, flexibility, rhythm, initiation, multitasking, those things that start to go away when you have Parkinson's.
13: And the class doesn't only benefit people who have Parkinson's. Wheezy's husband David attends a class with his wife and says he gets a lot out of it.
14: It gives us a chance to be very physically expressive. For instance, classes almost always begin with what we call the name game, and that means we're usually set up in a circle. You take turns going around and saying our names, And then we select a movement for the day. It might be if someone's exhausted, they'll look exhausted. If someone has been writing a lot, she or he will pretend they're moving their fingers on a keyboard. Uh, And then in the end, we have what we call a gift circle, which is the same kind of thing. We go around and everybody gives the person to their right, symbolically, in gesture, a gift. Flowers they've picked, a pie they've made. Um, stars they've pulled out of the heavens. And that's very powerful. And there aren't many settings for adults in this country where you get an opportunity to do something like that without feeling ridiculous. And uh, it's extremely refreshing. And I think particularly for someone with Parkinson's whose ability to move and express herself in gesture and in other things, it's quite liberating.
13: Those who take the class say the dancing makes them feel stronger and gives them much needed control over their bodies. Richard Hatch has been attending since the beginning and describes how it makes him feel. Good.
7: <laughs> yeah, um, when I go without it, I feel it immediately because uh, your body gets used to it. It's exercise and that's really the most important thing that you can do with Parkinson's, the more you get the
14: body functioning in one way or another.
13: Professor George Rebeck of Indiana University studies neurodegenerative diseases.
15: So we study how
14: neurons die,
15: basically. That's what a neurodegenerative disease is all about. Neurons are not living their full, normal life.
13: His research focuses on Huntington's disease, but he explains how exercise can have beneficial effects for someone with any neurodegenerative disease including Parkinson's.
15: For one thing, it increases blood flow. Uh, increased blood flow to the brain is probably a good thing. It brings in more nutrients, for example. It also changes certain activity patterns in the brain, and it seems to enhance certain types of uh, synaptic connections in the brain. So neurons may be able to talk to one another better, so it increases neural communication. And That's basically what the nervous system is all about, is communication. You want to have neurons, uh, uh, talking to other neurons in a way that will allow behavior to to improve, and you can do that effectively, uh, I think, with exercise.
13: But the benefits aren't only physical. Wheezy says the dance group serves
10: as a supportive community for everybody involved. I think it's an important part of the program because I think people with Parkinson's tend to isolate themselves because they feel as though they're different now. And uh, to have that sense of community is very important. Her husband agrees.
14: One of the things that I think is really important about this program is it doesn't focus on what you can't do. It doesn't say, you've got this, that, or the other problem, and we're going to solve that for you. Instead, it focuses on what we can do. And it's very empowering. Someone with Parkinson's disease does not need to be reminded about what she or he can't do. That's very clear to them. But to be reminded of what you can do, that's very special.
13: For WFIU Arts, I'm Lacey Skarmana.
1: The stories you're hearing this hour are all about the role of the arts in the lives of people in Indiana living with disabilities. We've learned how theater and dance can be used in a therapeutic capacity. Music can play a similar role. Our next report explores how music can help children on the autism spectrum increase their emotional and social skills, and especially the ability to use language. Here's a tip. If you're near a set of headphones, put them on about three minutes in to get a feeling for the way music activates both sides of the brain. Mark Chilla reports.
2: If you can, match the beat.
1: A
8: group of board-certified music therapists from around the state are gathered here in a small auditorium at the Indiana University Health Riley Children's Hospital, handing out drums to children and their families. It's part of an event called Indie Sings, a music therapy experience. As the drumming quickly dissolves into a din, parents' faces are lighting up. This particular demonstration is showing how music therapy, and the rhythmic component of music specifically, can help children on the autism spectrum practice motor coordination and personal expression. So what is music therapy? There's often some confusion. It's not just about performers using music trying to help people with disabilities or other ailments. It's an established health practice that's been around for 60 years with licensed professionals. And what it can accomplish depends on the patient.
12: Some of the most amazing things that have come out of therapy sessions are purposeful speech, um, learning to sight-read words, um, a lot of language development, social skill enhancement.
8: That's Amanda Henley, a research associate at the IU School of Nursing and one of the coordinators of the Indy Sings event.
12: They're They're not thinking that they're actually working on that when you're meeting with them for a music therapy session, but all of those things kind of grow and come out of a music therapy session.
8: A session could mean singing or playing music to work on expression or language development, or listening and discussing music to help with developmental or learning disabilities. Take this example from Kate Myers Kaufman, a music therapist at the organization Noble of Indiana. One of her clients had trouble communicating.
2: said he doesn't talk that much, so when I first started working with him, I just tried singing songs to see if he knew any lyrics. Traditional folk songs or children's songs. Then I started doing some Motown And he knew all the words to Michael Jackson All the words to Temptation songs you gotta smile so bright. Now he speaks full sentences And says, I want to play this I need to go to the bathroom He does pre-vocational work too And I had some of his other workers coming up to me saying I didn't even know he could talk music therapy kind of hit a nerve with him that helped him be able to express himself and now he communicates to everybody and it generalizes in his entire life. that
8: he... The Indie Sings event focused specifically on using music therapy as a means to help children on the autism spectrum allowing them to find help in their area of Indiana.
15: Specifically with the autistic community we see a lot of emotional and social skill development.
8: Lindsay Wright is the director of music therapy at the organization Opera for positive growth, as well as the president of the Association for Indiana Music Therapy.
15: We're able to focus on some of their sensory behaviors and able to get them to work on their motor skills a little bit, too. But we also work with people with Down syndrome, um, other developmental disabilities. With music, people are motivated to work on the therapy, but you also get cues for your brain. So you, you um, have the neurological component and the motivation to work on the therapy.
8: Knowing the neurological aspects of how music works is important for music therapists to decide which treatment to use. For instance, imagine a patient who's had a stroke on the left hemisphere of their brain. That's the area where speech is produced, stripping that person of the ability to communicate. Music, however, activates both hemispheres of the brain. A music therapist may get this patient to sing or try to complete the words to known songs, allowing them to regain the use of their voice. For children with autism, communication of emotions may be difficult, yet music can be a non-verbal way of expressing emotion, allowing these children to express themselves non-verbally. Andy, what makes
5: you happy? Riding my bicycle? Oh, Andy's happy when he rides, when he rides,
8: when he rides. Happy winning, riding, riding. Else? The music therapist that I talked to mentioned that their outreach had another important goal, state advocacy. Currently, there are only three states, North Dakota, Nevada, and Georgia, that have state licensing for music therapists. That's something that Wright, as the president of the Association for Indiana Music Therapy, is working towards.
15: Well, we've had a couple legislative efforts, and we've put out a couple bills. We were looking at increasing access to music therapy, but also we are looking for state recognition. We would like to protect the practice of music therapists and the title of music therapists. Um, there 's a lot of training that goes into becoming a music protecting
8: therapist. the practice means making it easier for licensed and trained music therapists to work with clients in hospitals or other care centers ensuring that patients can get the kind of treatment they really need
15: they' are within you know some of the hospitals in the state and they are hiring musicians who don 't necessarily have the training to be music therapists and a lot of the time it 's not because anybody 's trying to break any rules it 's just because they don 't realize that there is a program to study music therapy.
8: I asked Amanda Henley, along with her colleague, Caitlin Crater, a music therapist and graduate student at IUPUI, who also helped to organize Indie Sings to discuss the benefits of music. Why do you feel music therapy works so well? Why music?
2: You know, it has this ability to not only affect our mind, but our entire spirit, our bodies, in a way that a lot of other things don't I think that music is also
12: non-confrontational it's not scary most people enjoy music or there is some type of music that everyone you know can enjoy
8: Let's go back to the event when it started the music therapist began with a song a song they called the hello song designed to assist in communication oh.
2: hello song is a great example. I had a client who had never said hello unless he was prompted.
8: Caitlin Crater relays this story about the hello song and the way it helps someone in real life.
2: We started singing this hello song and it got inside of him so he was at the grocery store and he started singing hello to the cashier and it's just those little things that then transfer over to saying hello and understanding what that means.
8: For WFIU Arts, I'm Mark Chilla.
1: The stories you're hearing this hour were produced by Indiana Public Media with a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Yael Cassander. You can find these stories and others in the series on our website at wfiu.org arts disabilities. It's easy to associate disabilities with limitations, but that's not always true. Our last two stories this hour explore the ways people are accessing art forms that had traditionally been off-limits to them because of their disability. Look at Deaf Theatre. It's a performance practice that goes back to the early 20th century, but it didn't garner national attention until the 1960s. Today, the National Theatre of the Deaf tours the country. Deaf Theater is taught at Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C., and the Indiana School for the Deaf in Indianapolis. James Gray has this profile
6: of an Indiana-based performer. Colin Analco is an instructor at the Indiana School for the Deaf, or the ISD.
12: My wife right here is voicing for me.
6: That's the voice of Colin's wife, June. She's our interpreter.
12: I was born, actually, in Michigan, and then moved here to Indiana. My wonderful parents, they both are teachers, and myself and my twin brother actually are deaf. So they decided to go ahead and move here to Indiana for the education system at ISD. My parents had always encouraged me um, to try new things. When I actually started to engage in deaf theater and, it, you know, really kind of start with more of translating poetry and things that were very difficult, you know, in, even in a, a written language, um, that's when it really just all became so fascinating to me.
6: I watched a video on the internet of Colin performing a poem called Snare of the Arrow. He gave me live annotations over the phone. He points something out to me. I'm not sure if I ever would have looked for it if he hadn't. There's one moment where Colin looks to be pulling an arrow from a quiver. He loads it on his bow, pulls back, and fires. He uses his arms to represent the arrow. One finger jots out forward, jabbing and jutting through the wind. Then, like a close-up in a film, two fingers stick up behind the lateral pointer finger, and the tips of the angled fingers pivot quickly, the fingernails ebbing towards the body and back, just like a feather would wave on the end of an arrow, shooting through the air. Then, as the arrow hits the target, another finger and another one comes out. One, two, three. It's very fast. Just as written poetry can have imposed limitations like meter and rhyme patterns, and snare of the arrow, Colin set up his own limitations on his hands. Deaf theater provides the opportunity to combine choreography and literature. There's a unique expressive quality.
12: Well, for example, if you're just moving your face, you know, from happiness to sadness, you know, it's not believable for deaf individuals. You know, not just deaf individuals, but in general an audience. You know, but if you actually show your entire body being excited, like I'm showing you right now into sadness, you know, into kind of a a disdain characteristic, everything around you changes in that moment. And when the things around you change, the audience feels that emotion through your gestures. You know, if you're mad, you would sign really, really fast. Like, oh, I'm super pissed off. And the audience can feel that. There was one play over at Gallaudet called Noises Off.
6: Gallaudet University is a school for the deaf and hard of hearing. It's where Colin studied theater.
12: My character was Selden, and it was a very, very old man. You know, he loved whiskey, he loved to drink, and he he drank it often. And my director didn't give me any feedback, any criticism or anything. My character was very, you know, comedic. You know, so I kind of noticed, okay, if I'm not getting any reaction from my director would i get a reaction from the audience you know during that play so i went ahead and i performed as a character and actually my character was very you know comedic there's one part that i actually fall through a window and fall down the you know other side and the audience actually laughed so hard i could feel the stage vibrating the wood slats on the floor And, oh, my goodness, what an ego boost. You know, it wasn't just one or two times. It was probably about five times throughout the entire play that I could feel the audience laughing so hard. So if you perform in, you know, a comedy play and the floor shakes, you know you're doing something right.
6: (laughs) For WFIU Arts, I'm James Gray. You can see a video
1: of Colin Analco performing Snare of the Arrow at wfiu.org slash arts slash disabilities. From Indiana Public Media, this program explores the many roles art plays in the lives of Indiana residents with disabilities. I'm Yael Cassander. Museums are developing innovative ways of sharing their collections with their visually impaired visitors. With the use of techniques that tap into everybody's ability to create an image in the mind's eye, visual art is no longer off-limits to those with retinal limitations. In this story, the members of the Heartland chapter for the American Council of the Blind take a tour of the Indianapolis Museum of Art. It started as a party trick.
0: We were at a Christmas party last year. One of the games was you take a piece of paper and you put it on top of your head. And you were to draw a Christmas tree. Okay, now put the ornaments
1: on the Christmas tree. A tricky proposition. But how much trickier would it be if you not only couldn't see what you were drawing, but had never seen a Christmas tree?
0: I tried to imagine the branches of the tree, from what I could feel of a Christmas tree.
1: Christmas trees are not the only trees Bloomington resident Michelle Filippone hasn't seen.
0: I have no vision whatsoever. Um, Was born blind. My mother had uh, rubella, and she didn't realize she had it. So
1: So Michelle has a special perspective on visual representation and its conventions. For example, okay, like a Christmas tree cookie cutter looks ten times different
0: than an actual Christmas tree. I mean if you if you go to a store and you buy a set of cookie cutters, take a look at that Christmas tree cookie cutter. Is that a tree? I mean <laughs> Do you recall I said in the center also there is a tree?
1: Marion Pettingill is leading a low vision tour at the Indianapolis Museum of Art.
9: It's a large sycamore. It's unruly. It has huge branches and lots of leaves off to the left and the right. And then sticking straight up through the center are Marion
1: is describing very The Rainbow, a landscape painting from 1878 by the American artist George Innes. Several visually impaired visitors are seated in folding stools in front of the painting. The
9: goal is for them to experience it themselves rather than my giving a typical lecture at a museum. The descriptions need to be based on what is...
1: Tangible. Elizabeth Axel is the founder and president of Art Beyond Sight, which partners with the IMA, among many other museums around the country, to serve visually impaired visitors. So
9: for instance, for a congenitally blind person, a concept of light and dark or shadow could be described as the stream coming from a shower.
1: In other words, an analogy to something a visually impaired person can experience through another sense.
0: I try to imagine in my head, okay, the tree feels this way, okay? I can feel the needles beneath my fingers. If I dig far enough in, I can feel the actual branch. If you put your hands really on against it, you'll see, feel indentations between the rope. And this is a The sale. tour
1: Marion is leading at the IMA involves touching several sculptures.
0: Part of the ropes
13: were just sort of... Like how expected kind of flat, but then some of them sort of like jutted
2: out.
1: Mary Stores was one of the visitors touching Orly Genger's sculpture, LEM.
2: Feeling it, it wasn't really symmetrical. Like I kind of had this idea, maybe
9: it should be, um, I don't know. To me the it was- kind of visual analogy she created in her mind.
1: Elizabeth Axel wasn't on the tour with Mary, but understands the process. The low-vision tour materials Art Beyond Sight has developed incorporate the findings of cognitive scientists.
9: The ability to see in your mind's eye is something that we're all hardwired to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people,
0: when they say, well, what do you mean you see? That's Michelle, the one who had us reconsidering cookie cutters. Even though we don't see art the same way you do, through your eyes... We do see it.
9: Whether it's a person who's blind and visually impaired or who's sighted, looking at the stuff of human experience, it's not just history that then comes to life. It's the spirit of our fellow man, the core of what was in their heart. And that's an experience that anyone can take part in.
1: The Indianapolis Museum of Art offers touch and audio descriptive tours for visitors who are blind or partially sighted the third Saturday of each month at 2 p.m. Information about reserving a place on an upcoming tour is available at imamuseum.org. You can find a link to this story, the others you've heard today, and more at wfiu.org arts disabilities. This program was supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Art Works. For Indiana Public Media, I'm Yael Cassander. Looking back over the year of reporting and producing these stories, my colleagues and I here at Indiana Public Media are deeply grateful that we were given the chance to connect so intimately with our subjects and share their stories with you. A reporter is always appreciative of a source, but in this case, especially so. Coming into someone's home with a microphone to ask about his or her disability is awkward at best, not to mention potentially presumptuous or condescending. But all of the people you heard on today's program, along with the many others we interviewed, graciously bore with us and generously shared the insights their experiences had afforded them. We would like to extend special thanks to Jane Harlan-Simmons, Research Associate at the Center on Aging and Community at the Indiana Institute on Disability and Community. Jane not only gave us the lay of the land but helped us find stories and publicized our efforts through ArtsWork Indiana, a statewide network dedicated to making creative careers more accessible to adults and young people challenged by disability. You may access the network online at artsworkindiana.org. For Indiana Public Media, I'm Yael Cassander.
2: of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357 Information about Profiles including archives of past shows can be found on our website WFIU.org Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University James Gray is the producer The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Pashkash Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles